0: Hello book fans, this is non-fic pod host Emma Byrne speaking. Do you need a summer holiday plan that Covid can't spoil? Join us at Wild Words Festival brand new literary festival for people who don't do traditional literary festivals our exciting lineup includes debut sensation lizzie damalola blackburn crime writing powerhouse sophie hannah annabelle sammy one of the brightest and best kids authors out there non-fic pod favorites like dan smith and david robson we also have interactive theater science communication by tabletop role play hints on starting your own writing journey and loads more for the whole family Join us from the 3rd to the 5th of June in a gorgeous field just outside Potter's Bar for a celebration of all things wordy. And use the code NONFICPOD for 10% off all tickets. And now, back to the episode. Welcome to this fortnight's episode of NONFICPOD. I'm delighted to have Kate Green with us today. Kate Green was the crew writer and second in command on the first simulated Mars mission for the NASA-funded High Seas Project. A poet, essayist, and former laser physicist, her work has appeared in multiple publications and radio shows. She's taught writing at Columbia University, San Francisco State University, and the Tennessee Prison for Women. She lives in New York City, where she joins us from today. Hello, Kate. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I absolutely loved the book. Thank you for making the time to let me ask you some questions. Um, The first one that strikes me is, why might the dining table be one of the most important bits of furniture on any future Mars base?
1: Oh, this is such a fantastic question. I mean, the high seas mission as it was originally conceived was as a food study. So um, questions of the types of food, the kinds of food that you're going to be taking on this two and a half year mission to Mars were really centered. Um, and from the scientific perspective, you know, we, we were doing all sorts of things like, um, well, we had these two food systems that we, uh, looked at the pre-prepared meals, which is what you see on the ISS today. This is what astronauts on the space station eat, just like food and pouches that you heat up and squirt into your mouth. And, um, then, but we also tested a, um, this is a more creative, uh, uh, type of food system. So you were able to bring shelf stable material or shelf stable ingredients along and, and make novel meals. So like, uh, like pizza or uh, a cake or a beef tagine or some sort of like um, vegetable roll, you know, using nori and, and sushi rice. So the, there are all sorts of options. Um, and the thinking goes, if you have these options and maybe you get less bored with your meals and less bored in general. And so that's really what the project focused on. Um, we did a lot of measuring of uh, uh, the weight of our, our plates Piled high with food before the meal, and then after the meal to see what was left over. There are pictures taken. We filled out surveys before and after every meal about how we felt about the food. So what I'm saying is, food was very important. But uh, one question that wasn't asked that just occurred to me as um, I was on this four month mission was how important the dining table actually is as a as a piece of furniture and how it functions to bring people together. We as a crew decided that we wanted to eat all of our meals together. And that's not what all crews decide. You know, that was just something that we wanted to do. So breakfast, lunch, and dinner, there are three meals in the day. And then um, we also decided, and I'm not quite sure why we made these decisions, but we just agreed upon them and then stuck to them. But we also decided to sit at the same seats at the table every day. And that that was interesting. You know, you think about a family dinner table and how much uh, importance that has in the development of relationships in the family of, you know, kids growing up, you know, what those discussions are. And for me in particular, the, uh, family dining table experience was really important. We would have debates, we would talk about ideas. It wasn't just like, what did you do at school today? And then you eat your meal and you're off, you know, no television was allowed. So like for me growing up, the table was very important. And I noticed, um, that also on our mission, it was, it was important as well. And if you look at, um, I mean, it's where we, it's where we came together every day. We, you know, some people left, uh, earlier than others you know you had like a group of extroverts that kind of lingered around after dinner and would just talk about whatever and you know those were really important bonding moments and sort of like non-codified in the like the the daily routine this wasn't a scheduled thing and that's a that's what happens around tables um meal tables is you you get a lot of the um the humanity of uh, these sort of missions or expeditions, that's, it, it happens around meals and especially if you have a table. Now, the shape of the table is interesting too, and I don't know um, how much you, your question kind of wants to get into this, but um, if you looked at the uh, Skylab table, so this was the first American, well, the only actual American space station that flew um, in the 70s. And that table is for a crew of three, and it was decided that that table be in a triangle shape. And that was to make sure that no one presided at the head, the idea being that you wanted to create more of an egalitarian environment in space, you know, kind of rethinking what might be possible in space. Uh, I think something similar can happen with a round table. On the high seas mission, we had a rectangular table. So there was definitely a head and definitely a foot. And that was something that I I I was kind of aware of and watched for in, in case it like played out in terms of dynamics, you know, um, like if, if people were oppositional to each other. Um, If if the table might have something to do with it, it it was a question that did occur to me. So, yeah, the shape of the table, I think, is a very interesting question and um, not one that was uh, actually uh, uh, made into a a scientific research question, but potentially in the future. I mean, it's certainly a design question uh, that, that could be considered going forward on any space mission.
0: Yeah, I mean, I was fascinated reading about that sort of liminal space that mealtimes became. Um, and I around the same time, I heard a podcast where the person who was the president of the Paris COP meeting, where the amazing Breakthrough Accord was made, and she was saying that she had very deliberately chosen round tables for the very reasons that you mentioned, this idea of an egalitarian, non-hierarchical space. Um, But you also mentioned that you use that dining table and that ability to make your own food as a way of marking celebrations or important moments in life. How did that come about? Was that a deliberate choice? Was it planned? Or was that just spontaneously you found that food you make yourself is somehow a celebration?
1: It was, it was actually kind of the impetus for the entire mission to begin with. Kim Binstead, um, who, from the University of Hawaii, who uh, started the project with Jean Hunter at Cornell University, uh, had had her own four-month simulated mission in Canada, um, in the, like the wilds of, of Canada. And she found that she had a crewmate that was, that was a bit homesick. And it occurred to her that they might try to cheer him up by making poutine, because this was a Canadian crewmate, and this and poutine is a very comforting meal. Of um, for listeners who might not know, it's um, French fries or chips and uh, a gravy of some kind and cheese curds on top. And it's it's actually many things these days, you know. In its original form, that's what it was, but. These days, uh, you can do almost anything. Um, You can put almost anything on top of (laughs) French fries um, (laughs) to make a delicious comforting meal. And they did not have those ingredients uh, exactly, but they did have shelf stable components that they could fashion into French fries. They had a packet of gravy, of course, that worked. And then the cheese curds needed to be uh, created from powdered milk. So um, the whole process, it, you know, it kind of derailed all the other scheduled things that needed to happen. And, and they, they just like really focused on making this uh, ridiculous and comforting meal for this crewmate. And it turned out to be one of the most important aspects of the mission, I mean, it ended up getting mentioned in a research paper of this, this poutine meal that was fashioned out of ridiculous ingredients um, because it brought the crew together and it inspired other meals and other celebrations. They were looking for all the reasons to make ridiculous things and to celebrate anything they could just to, just to like maintain a sort of humanity. It's really easy in expeditions and, um And especially space, because it's such a technolo- technologized environment um to believe that you too need to be a machine and and a technology and to suppress some some basic human needs for you know um comfort and and all the ways that that can come so um yeah that that it ended up being the the fundamental question, you know, how can food like stave off boredom but also um be used to kind of give you back your humanity in in this highly uh technologized environment so uh we were encouraged to do that, and I'm glad we were because I think as a crew, you know we are selected um for our diversity in some ways, but I also think that you know, no one played an instrument, for instance. So no one really brought like a guitar and and we didn't have um, people who are more inclined toward like visual arts or, I mean, say interior design. So I think that our environment wasn't as dynamic or interesting as it could have been had there been a person that that thought more about that. And also we, um, there was, no one who had like a performance element. So we had, we had some artistic uh, people with artistic backgrounds, but it wasn't quite, it wasn't in terms of like music or perfor- performance or visual arts. Um, and I don't think that that's necessarily something that was consciously thought about, but, but um, something that was novel about this mission was that uh, people were selected for different backgrounds. So our commander in particular had a, um, was a working artist and you know he did uh collaborative art projects uh and i as a writer i'm kind of like the non um i I didn't work professionally as a scientist at the time so you know i I brought something different but i so i think the question of um celebrations and celebrations with food in particular uh is really important just to remind you of um, the fact that you are a human being with a human body in an environment that, uh, doesn't actually want that to exist. (laughs) You know, this is, this is an environment that's engineered for, uh, machines and also the fact that you are this soft body with all these requirements of food and water and, you know, waste removal. Uh, that's not something that, uh, outer space is actually amenable to. So anything, um, so anytime there's a body in space there needs to be a lot of technology to help that out but you uh if you're if you're in space for a while it's really good if you have reminders that you are not that technology that you are actually a person too
0: yeah because I was struck by how how Datafied, you all were, and the number of questionnaires you had to fill out, and the the amounts of measurements, as you say, of the food on your plate, the amount of appetite, whether or not you could smell certain smells. Which, having become a nosmic after a mild brush with COVID just over a year ago, I can say, you know, it really does alter how much you enjoy food or or not. Uh, And as you were sent to this base in Hawaii, um. As you said, there was a team of six that were constituted in very different ways, some of whom were quite out, rugged outdoors people, some of whom were not. What would you say was the most useful experience in terms of the right stuff? I was struck by the contrast between the people who you know, were used to climbing over barren rockscapes versus the people it may even have been the same person who were used to sitting on a crowded, or even standing on a crowded subway car and not making eye contact with people and maintaining their personal boundaries in the face of crowdedness. What kinds of characteristics helped people get by in this very artificial environment?
1: Well, well, I think you actually uh, kind of... um brought up two really good points i mean the fact that you need to have both is is kind of the big thing for a lot of um astronaut selection is you need to be an introverted extrovert or an extroverted introvert you know you need to be someone who can think systematically but also think creatively you know so it's kind of like this um you know you need to you need you look at the spectrum of personalities uh the way that personalities are kind of divided up, and you you have to have someone who has the capability to be, you know, all across that spectrum, uh, depending on what the situation demands. So, yeah, you have to be able to get along well with others and then be very content working in solitude uh, for as long as need be. Uh, you need to be athletic and physically fit and able to do some of these very arduous physical tasks, but also... Um, sit quietly for extremely long times because not all of a mission is this, you know, getting into a spacesuit, which takes hours in real life and going out for, uh, you know, a 12-hour spacewalk to tighten some bolts, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, it's, it's hard to say exactly what the most important... Um... <laughs> I mean, it does occur to me that the most un- important characteristic uh that a person would need to be an actual astronaut is just being willing to do whatever it takes in almost any circumstance mm-hmm. uh and you know that's that's not everyone on this planet <laughs> that's not most people on this planet most people have some limits <laughs> but i think that um if you look at what a- astronauts actually do uh they have to they have to put up with a lot mm. that most ordinary people would never first of all imagine and then like if they were presented with it would be would just simply say no thank you.
0: (laughs) Yeah you mentioned that your sanitation was uh, problematic while you were there and one of the things that you'd had to put up with was was it called a field toilet or something? Yeah
1: field toilet I didn't know about that either I learned about that because um, our engineer was a a soldier in Afghanistan and so he uh, was in charge of the (laughs) The making the field toilet. So we had two bathrooms and that was really great because, um, that's a system you want to have redundancy in. And, um, since it was the first mission we used, it was easiest to, uh, get up and running, uh, just a a regular plumbing system with water. Uh, and on subsequent missions, they used a composting toilet, but, or two compost, I think it was two composting toilets. So, um, what ended up happening with ours was because we were off grid uh, there, yeah, there was a, there was a problem in the system that uh, clogged the line and then uh, we weren't able to use the toilet for about a day. And so a field toilet was created with, you know, a bucket lined um, with multiple trash bags. And then those trash bags had to be removed. And, you know, the, uh, the support team that would come up the mountain and make drop-offs and, and pick up, uh, garbage. Uh, had to take a a rubber giant rubbermaid container full of trash bags full of. You know, uh, bio waste. <laughs> you could call it. Uh, had to take that down the mountain. So
0: that sounds like everyone uh, involved had to do whatever it took. <laughs> yeah,
1: that. I mean, that's that's absolutely right. Actually, you you do have to. It's not just the astronauts or the astronaut stand-ins or you know, um, it, it's it's uh, the support team and everyone kind of pitching in together. It's it's such a um, you know, you watch movies like um, Apollo 13, and you get a sense of that this is like a true team effort. Uh, but when you're in it, and you recognize that ye- there there are interdependencies and that are that you never would have imagined, and then you're grateful for the fact that the people who are involved um, do whatever it takes and are are really committed to the project. Mm, so yeah. it it was a you know, we do have this idea of these astronauts as heroes um, and it's harder to conceive of like the whole um, organism as as heroic. But I think that th- there's really something to that.
0: Yeah, I mean, the original space missions were built largely around the sort of test pilot ethos because of, you know, the likelihood that these systems would blow up. Uh, so you had to have people who were willing to risk their lives to try this new technology. But you make a very clear uh, scientific and economic point that uh, space missions, crewed missions, would be much cheaper if staffed largely by women.
1: Yes, that was something that occurred to me around the dinner table. Um, the fact that, well, I mean, first of all, there's been some thinking around, um, like the the test pilot uh, personality might not be super compatible with a longer space mission uh, going to Mars, mostly because a lot of those people uh, are adrenaline junkies and a longer mission to Mars uh, two and a half years or so would require a lot of sitting still and a lot of non-action. And so um, again, it's that personality, like a spectrum that you need to have, not just people who are kind of like pinned at this sort of, um, you know, adrenaline. And, uh, and so so NASA and, you know, other space agencies are looking for different types of people. But uh, I noticed over time, you know, I looked around the table and the there were three men and three women on the mission. And the guys often went back for seconds, you know, and um, and often had like food piled higher on their plates than uh, the women did. And then I was also conducting a sleep study and we had to wear these armbands and, you know, looking through the data, I didn't know whose data was whose, but uh, I could see uh, gender and notice that the estimated caloric use um, for the women on the crew was less than half of the guys. So it was something like um, 1400 calories a day versus like 3,200 calories. And and it occurred to me, OK, well, when you're thinking of one of these space missions, especially a very long one, one of the largest payload components is food, uh, not just in volume, but also in weight. And when you can reduce the weight of a space mission, you can make it cheaper because it's cheaper to or you can you, or you can just allocate that space and weight to something else. You know, you have more um you have more room to play engineers have more room to play but ultimately what it is is if you can reduce the weight of a of um, your payload then you can reduce the cost of flying because of the fuel that it takes to get that huge payload off the ground and then into orbit and like out um, further beyond and so I thought well gosh if you're sending six people like us uh, if you just sent six, Women or even smaller people. I mean, it's not it's not purely by gender. It's uh, like, for instance, yeah. I mean, you just if you're a person who's smaller and requires fewer calories, then um, you don't need as much food, and you can really uh, make a cheaper mission. So it was it was a bit fun to, you know, I originally wrote about this idea for Slate, and uh, somewhat tongue in cheek, uh, just to see what would happen and it was, it was really fun to see the responses of, uh, the readers. Uh, I, you know, I didn't get any death threats, which I know is a thing that happens these days. So I was surprised by that. Um, most people engaged with it in kind of like a fun way. And, um, you know, it's been an idea that's been talked about a little bit, um, beyond, but it also points to the fact that, um, Sorry, can you hear that I noise? Kid, I'm afraid yeah. It does seem like there's some construction happening. Uh, I live in New York in an apartment building. There's also a lot of trucks outside my window too. So there's some noise that um might might show up in this interview. Um but when thinking about the the question of who gets to go to space, um you know, in framing it in this purely economic way, as I did in the slate article and then in the book that if you if you really care about economics, then you should choose the most economic um astronaut crew, and that would be a crew of mostly women um it it actually just points to the socially constructed ways that we conceive of what is an appropriate astronaut or not if we want to um if we want to privilege the economic we could we always could have but the fact of the matter is only a very tiny fraction of astronauts who've ever flown have been women, and the reason why is because of this legacy of this is something that test pilots um should do and i you know there's this pool that has been drawn from the the military pool which just uh has a huge number i mean proportionately it's just so many more men than women and then only in the 80s was it opened up to more people but even then those crews were mostly men so i mean it the decisions were made and then they were upheld to have astronauts almost exclusively be men and and it's for reasons that have nothing to do with economics it's these are social reasons and and likewise in the book you know um I grew up with a brother who had a disability, spina bifida, and so he had a different kind of body and made me think about, you know, what is a disability on earth might actually be um, like uh, an ability in space. For instance, um, you have to exercise a lot in space just to keep your muscles from atrophying your bones healthy and your heart healthy and um, one of the biggest muscle groups of, of your body um, are your thighs. And what if what if amputees, double amputees, uh, were astronauts? Fact is, most of the mission to Mars is going to be in a zero g environment you do not need your legs. They're a liability. You re you have to like make sure that your legs are healthy. So if you have some sort of prosthetic and p- perhaps you can even have some sort of specially engineered prosthetic, then this, this astronaut is actually super capable, beyond capable of what someone who has, um, two of their own legs could actually do. So it's just, you know, when you think about who gets to be an astronaut, um, unfortunately that question kind of like got frozen in time, um, for a long time. And, and even now, like chipping away at that is, is very difficult. I mean, I'm all for just melting the whole thing down and like using some different molds, you know, to, to see, to see what we can do and think more creatively about it. I, and, it, you know, space is a very difficult technological engineering problem. Um, I just, I wonder what it, would have been like and what it can be like going forward, if um, there was more design thinking baked into it, if there are more artists who are asked to, um, to contribute and not just asked to contribute, but to have their voices elevated. Because I think what happens in um, engineering environments, I've been in a few of them, um, is that uh, the engineer says it's not possible, you know, and and then the, like the kind of wild out there idea gets shot down. But um, if if you're just if you just leave it up to an artist, the artist will always find a way to make something possible. So give give the artist, give the designer like more rain, and then suddenly you're going to see all sorts of different types of space uh, reasons to be in space and people to be in space and space it can actually be as expansive as it as it is and not just a sort of a, um, a narrow view based on what it had been in the past. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that there's some possibility going forward for some, uh, the European Space Agency opened up uh, a call for astronauts with disabilities in its last call. And so that is, that's pointing toward a future where um, people recognize what what is actually valuable in space and how um, different bodies can can also be in that environment you don 't have to have to uh, um, select for the body that seems to be most able here on earth yeah. that doesn 't make sense when you 're in space like all rules kind of get thrown out the window when you 're in space, so why not actually throw out some of the the
0: the ones that were there from the beginning? It is incredible that in a field that has such radical scientific, engineering, technological thinking, that the social thinking, the cultural thinking is quite rigid. But I noticed that one of the first uh, commercial flights that's going up soon, the seats have been bought by a Japanese philanthropist who is giving them to a range of artists and designers. How might that increasing participation of non-scientists, non-military, non-test pilot types alter our view our cultural view of space exploration
1: i think that that's a really great question and it probably is a pretty complicated answer right now these days because um as we saw with uh, some of the recent launches uh from spacex blue origin and the um Uh, Virgin Galactic actually in particular Blue Origin and Virgin Galactic Um, in America at least I know that there there's like the camp that's very excited about you know what this could do and then there are people who just get annoyed that it looks like billionaires with their toys Um, SpaceX recently launched uh, in September an all-civilian crewed mission that uh had different kinds of people on it um diff- these were different kinds of astronauts and it was a 3 day mission and it showed what was possible but still there are there are people who just think you know i don't i i don't trust it because it's it's Elon Musk it's billionaires and and i don't trust um their motivations and that they actually have humanity's best interest in mind so there so when you uh, think about the um Japanese uh philanthropist there's also something that's a little bit confounding about that like who will those artists be will they be the most famous artists the artists that already have the most privilege or will it be the artist's um, will it be the young up and coming artists that those artists love, and and maybe that's an interesting, that would be an interesting project is to not have the the big names that everyone knows, but to have have the people that those artists are watching. Mm-hmm. Um, but I it, I think right now it's I am waiting to see how it changes. It's hard to predict because. Um, yeah, the the idea of why should we care about space when there's so much wrong on Earth is something that is, um, it's a very present argument in many people's minds and not without good reason, not without excellent cause. And then the counter argument is that, well, if you do, if you, are able to go into space, then you get a broader perspective of Earth. And you, the problems you have to overcome to get to space can help back on Earth. And I think that I, I don't disagree with that, but I think that in a way that sort of minimizes the, the very real and I would say correct feeling that to go to space abandons something here. So I, I I do think that th- these will always be in conflict, and it would be nice if it were easier to um, hold both um, in our minds and work toward both in a way that feels good. And I think that you know this is where my own personal opinions come in in terms of the um, the branding and the marketing and the um, storytelling of spacex and blue origin in particular i i I think that these were technology companies um headed by technologists and i don't think they necessarily realized how important it is to um build humanity into their technologies from the beginning and so right now right now the the goals of those companies don't feel um, uh, don't necessarily scale Mm. to most of the world. And I think it's to their detriment, you know, NASA is the most, well, it's a, it's the most beloved governmental agency (laughs) uh, in the country. Mm. And it, it did so, I mean, it's not perfect, obviously, but it really actually understood or maybe it's just something that grew out of the Cold War era that, um, and and the nationalism <laughs> that uh, was necessary to get that pro- program up and running. Uh, that when you can bring people together, that you you are you you are in a powerful position, and you know they've continued to leverage that for educational programs and to get kids into science and engineering. Um, so something of the NASA brand, but now it's it's a little confused with the um, with commercial spaceflight because where does what role does NASA play now? Whose brand gets to claim the advance, the um, the adventure, and and the hopes and dreams? And you know, speaking of brand, sounds very um, prosaic and a little bit icky, but it's it's actually true. It's it's now a diffused idea and and unfortunately what's what's sort of like forming in the in the cloud is um, like the singular entities of these billionaires and what billionaires stand for rather than what um, you know a collective of people trying to do something new and different and exciting uh, uh, stands for so yeah. you know, that's that's a long <laughs> that's a long response to um, a, a very good question, and and one that I think is going to be—it's complicated, and it's it's going to sh- reveal itself in many different ways in the coming years, and it's it'll be interesting to watch and see.
0: I think one of the juxtapositions that really throws that into relief is the the golden record on the Voyager uh, explorers, and then the Tesla that was shot into. This space with its data on board which included I think was it Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy no it was Asimov's Foundation series, which is great and all but the way that the golden record was selected and you do refer to it in the book and some of the material that was on there and that desire to say this is a, a representative of humanity and what humanity is made of Whereas the firing Tesla into space with the Foundation Trilogy on it really sort of felt like, hi, I'm Elon Musk, and this is what I'm into. It's sort of like his intergalactic dating profile. I don't
1: know. Oh, my God. That's such a perfect way of describing it, his intergalactic dating profile. Yeah, it was exactly right. I mean, and the contrast was so great as well. Yeah, so so that's what we're dealing with with space right now. Are those competing ethos, and and so I'm I'm not surprised that there are plenty of people who are highly skeptical of what comes next in space exploration.
0: Yeah, I um I think the difference between the uh, that original belief that even if it was born of the Cold War that there was something about humanity going to space, and it did remind yeah. me when I looked at trench warfare uh, in the second world war, the history of that whenever the uh, the sappers the miners that would undermine the trenches would run into their opposing numbers so German miners meeting usually actually Welsh miners but from the the Allied side that they would quietly block up their aperture and go their other way because they knew that the job they were doing was so skilled and so dangerous that they would not fight with one another. And I wonder if there's something like that with the international crews on the space station that whatever we on Earth are doing, across our borders with our national tensions whether there is something about being thrown together in that environment that regardless of the what is it the overview effect erasing borders the mere fact of being one of the few people who's having to deal with being in this technologized environment breaks down those borders did you find that with your crew
1: yeah, well, I mean, first of all, I just have to say that's a really fascinating analogy, and I didn't know about that, but I'll be thinking about that for a long time. Those miners, just recognizing that they were doing their jobs, um, their jobs weren't to like uh, disrupt the others. Uh, they had they had their very specific jobs to do. I mean, and when you have um, that first earth shot picture that came back and went around the world and the astronauts that did world tours and were so like accepted by everyone, even in Russia, even in the Soviet union. Yeah. This was something that was, this was for humanity. It was the first time it had ever been done. Um, and there was a true sense of this is, this is all of ours. This planet is all of ours. Um, yeah. And, and with our crew too, I mean, it, we had an international crew, uh, that was pretty exciting and, you know, just kind of mirrored what actually happens in space. That this isn't um just uh an American endeavor and and actually never has been. You know, this is this has always been a
0: something that the world has done. Yeah. And I was interested in in the book you mentioned both the film contact. Uh, and also the commander of the Apollo mission, his name, I'm sorry, escapes me, both of which featured the line, should have sent a poet, which I yes. never noticed before until you mentioned this. Uh, the commander from the mission saying, you know, the, the, the lack of artists, the lack of space built in for making art to send home was to some extent an oversight. And yet that photograph, the Earthrise photograph in its just pure simplicity, has had possibly one of the most profound impacts on society. How do you see this commercialization of space? Do you think we're going to replicate this lack of poetry? Is it all going to be in prose?
1: Well, not necessarily. Um, so the mission, the SpaceX mission, the four person crewed mission that that went up in September um had on it as pilot dr cyan proctor who was on the high seas mission uh with me in 2013 and so very excitingly she got to become an actual astronaut through this alternate avenue there was a billionaire um who bought seats and then like had a contest and ultimately the whole project was to raise money for saint jude the children's hospital here in the states that treats um kids with cancer and in a very, uh, caring and innovative way. It's, it's actually a really fantastic organization. Um, and Cyan's main goal, even though she was trained as a pilot of this dragon capsule was to do art in space because she, she really came into her own as an artist over the past couple of years. And she asked uh, me to curate some poems to, to fly in space as well. So I was able to ask some poet friends to send along some previously unpublished poems that, you know, she would read. And they ended up being auctioned off as like, you know, proof of space flight. These poems went to space. Um, and so the, you know, Cyan decided to make room for art in space. Uh, it was actually really challenging. Uh, she said the, um, bringing paints into space. That was something no one had ever done. And, um, you know, payload specialists were very, the, the, the folks in charge of like, what gets a fire or not where, you know, uh, would, would, or would these markers have fumes that might be toxic in some way. So like bringing art supplies, making art in space is something that it was just a short three-day trip, but um, it it was it was actually pretty challenging uh for her to do so like the whole thing isn't set up for it, and you really do have to push for it if you want it um and I think that going forward there will probably be more of that in space. i mean there just has to be i i think that uh there's oh I don't know the details of this, but there is a um there's a film crew going to space or there's a movie being shot in space. I have to, I have to say, I don't necessarily keep up with all the space news these days, uh, but I did hear something about that. So I think that, uh, and that happened, you know, even on the Mir space station, there were commercials being made. uh, The Russians were selling seats. Uh, It was, it was a way to fund the, the, Agency actually, um, and so that it it's not necessarily a new idea, but I think it's going to expand significantly um, in the coming year. Space is going to be is going to look a little different. It's not going to be so exclusive in particular ways in the ways that it has been in the past. Um, it might uh, seem a little more fun too. I think that that is going to be uh, that's going to bring something interesting and it also might seem more frivolous in some ways which i think can complicate things too so you know it's 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 one of those things again we will see you know it's probably going to look a lot different 5 years from now and 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 especially 10 years
0: usually at this point we move on to something called um i don't know how you feel about profanity but uh, shit i wish i'd known but the shit <laughs> that we wish we'd known before we started writing either this Particular book that we're talking about, or at the beginning of our writing careers, and so I had a couple of questions on that. If that's okay, yes, please. So you, oh, by the way, this word. by the way, I yeah, love, I love profanity. Okay, that's good. <laughs> Fine, excellent. I've been so good so far. It probably will not last. I think the sweariest one I ever did was with Chanda Prescott Weinstein, who is a mm-hmm. uh, a cosmologist. And we ended up my favorite one, I still need to get the badges made up with was, was the phrase lean in fuck off. Mm, <laughs> oh, I love that. That's <laughs> yeah. a feature. So, yeah, cute. we need to do the lean in fuck off merch for I don't know, in aid of some kind of stop making women do all the hard work. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so, anyway. Exactly. <laughs> so now I'm gonna ask Kate about what she wishes she'd known before starting to write this incredible book. One of the fantastic words that I learned from this book was the idea of tech schmerz, which is a word I hadn't heard before, but it's a feeling I definitely had. Uh, could you explain tech schmerz and let me know if you had any while writing the book? <laughs> yeah, so
1: this is a concept that like occurred to me. It's a little bit related to the idea of Weltschmerz, which is the a, a sort of world pain of a, a wishing that something was there's, there's somebody's a, going to, speak to you um, Just it, world pain, wishing that the world was was different than what you actually felt and experienced. And so with technology, it's a wishing that technology worked how you thought it would, or how it was promised to, or you know what what you were expecting. And and so often with technology, it doesn't. We we have to constantly readjust our expectations of our technological, um, companions. <laughs> I mean, all the time and anything, you know, even just even in this podcast and, and the the technology that's enabling this really wonderful, like cross-world communication, um, whenever there's something that goes slightly wrong, it, it, it kind of hurts because I, and I think with like Zoom in particular, I, you, you asked about the book, but like, um, you know, when the book came out, and i was able to do these uh zoom conversations with people that felt amazing because so many more people from so many more places could be a part of that conversation but at the same time the the flatness of the experience left you like longing and and like and tired in a way that uh is is new you know what is this fatigue it's it's something that has only happened in the past couple of years at this scale so that's that's the sort of like pain that that shows up but in terms of writing the book um what techno schmirtz i experienced was not really um i don't think i experienced much in in the writing of the book it was a very low tech exp- well
0: Um, what tools do you use for your writing
1: oh it depends I'm a little like what is available I'll grab it obviously I use a laptop um and I type I use Scrivener that software because it's just a great place to dump stuff um I use my notes app on my phone constantly for ideas and um, and I have notebooks, physical notebooks that I also write ideas and I, a lot of stuff starts in the notebook, um, because like, it'll come in a rush and I just have to get it down. And then I bring that to the, the, um, the like more sort of like organized writing of the book, this book, um, structurally, it was a conundrum to me for a long time. And so those rushes of ideas were actually really important because I decided to go with the essay um, like in kind of the Montaigne version of the essay in the way that um, Montaigne moves wherever he like allows his consciousness to dictate the next move of the piece. And, you know, there are a lot of different ways to write essays, but ultimately that's what I ended up doing was sort of like, I had so many thoughts about each of these essays, the topics on isolation, you know, on correspondence, that um, I would sit with those, all the collected research I had done, and I would just sort of like, like, what um, soak myself in it, and then I would write and see what connected to what, and 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 it was is it was basically a record of my consciousness processing these things that felt in some way related to this topic, even if it was like, it seems like left field from the topic, because it, it was it was with me, I knew that it, it belonged, you know, because it, I couldn't let it go. It, I knew it had to belong in some ways. And so I didn't necessarily make all those connections explicit for people, but like just adjacencies, um, I hoped could show that um, these ideas belong together.
0: Yeah, I mean, it is a very flowing book and it travels from the high seas base in Hawaii to your home with your former partner, to your brother's hospital bed. And all of those things you bring together with this, uh, I guess, the the flow of these ideas as they emerge from, from your consciousness. And how does that compare to, say, for example, someone saying we need, you know, 1,500 words for Slate by Thursday week. <laughs> Heaven, you have a, have a deadline that that long in advance. But how did the pace compare writing for a book versus writing your uh, your journalistic output?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. And I have just so many years been trained on 1,500 words, you know, on a deadline. and And so this one, you know, writing a book, around some of the same topics that I wrote about in a journalistic way. um, It, I mean, it's a different metabolism and you have to get used to that. So I wasn't doing a lot of those short stories while I was doing the book. I was, and that was really nice because I was allowed to exist in that length and, and time. The other thing is, you know, when you're writing something journalistically, you are um, beholden to whether it's obvious or not, um, a hidden structure or a structure in general that dictates where information shows up and uh, where the author and opinion show up. I mean, there's a lot of flexibility in in certain publications, but when you're writing a book, you are the authority on how information shows up. You know, you can you can look to other authors who've come before and other books that are structured in particular ways, but ultimately you have to decide what's best for the information you have and um, who you are as a writer while you're writing it. And, you know, and that can change as you're writing it too. So yeah, for me to, I try to honor who I was um, as a writer, writing that book as much as possible as almost um, like marking a particular period of my life. You know, there's that, this book couldn't, I'm sure people have said this before, but the book that that you read couldn't have existed a couple years earlier and it would not be the book that I would write today. So it it has a, to me, it has like that sort of like monument feel, like it it like marks something. And then... um, yeah just the way that uh you're allowed the freedom but there's a sort of tyranny in that freedom uh in that you have to it, it's up to you it's like, i've gotta find a structure yeah it's up to you to figure out what the book wants to be and um good luck
0: yeah i found that moving from writing for academic publication which again incredibly formulaic and lots of rules about not inserting yourself and how much work my editor had to do particularly on the first book of getting my voice to stay consistent on the page Uh, and when I met someone at a um a party that that publisher was was throwing and she went wow you sound in person exactly like you do on the page like you have no idea how hard my editor had to work to make that happen because there is something about the tyranny of saying I'm going to, well, for me anyway, I found that process of exposing myself in it, and mine's not even memoir, uh, extremely unnerving. And yet, there is so much sort of honesty and clarity in this. Did you, were there any sections you felt trepidatious about writing, about exposing, or because it followed so naturally on from those experiences, did it just feel right to have those those parts of the story integral to, to what you wrote?
1: Well, yes. I, so I very consciously began the book with a tone that was, um, like journalistic and detached. And I wanted to use the book as an exploration to see where I got to the emotional hotspots for myself. And I knew that it wasn't going to be the whole book. You know, this is I've also termed it like a queer space memoir and essays you know so is it memoir it doesn't really follow a lot of memoir structure essays it's it's actually not like a lot of literary essays either um queer well it doesn't necessarily I mean I am a queer person and there is a gay marriage that um is discussed in this book but it's not like it doesn't um, deal with the queer themes, but as so I figure, if I take all of these things, which it kind of isn't, and put it all together, then it, you get the book that it actually is. Um, but I, I, uh, I think I knew that as I wrote, I would feel where it needed to be more emotional, um, and it doesn't. I and I know it doesn't happen that often in the book either, and that that felt correct because there is a lot of um, sort of like holding it together uh, in, in life (laughs) for me in particular. And then with these ideas, um, and then when I, when a lot of these ideas sort of like, um, tendrilled into actual lived life for me in terms of like isolation and my, the end of my brother's life, um, and his time in the hospital, I knew that, that, um, like the worst thing I could do is to deny the emotional reality of, of that, of those, um, that accompanied those. Often when you connect ideas, you, um, like abstract ideas, the, the connectors are like sterile. I don't know. I kind of imagine them as like rods or something made out of like a shiny metal or, you know, but there's something about, connecting ideas or technologies to like more personal things and then those connectors are like maybe they're they're like um more rope ropey or like something with texture and or even like i don't know sticky elastic organic of some kind you know there's there's the the connectors are, are very different um it sort of reminds me when a,
0: a tree grows around a, a... A cast- iron fence oh absolutely. and you sort of see the tree going through it, but the the fence going through it but the tree has like sort of formed around it and now you can't have one without the other
1: I just saw something that you're just that exact description um on a walk the other day and I was dumbfounded for a good minute just looking at that form and oh, I can't it can't be anything other than what it was. And yeah. Yeah, it's really, really fascinating. So yeah, I don't know. Um, does that does that kind of get at that question? Yeah,
0: I mean I was phenomenally moved and I was surprised that that one of the things that moved me the most was actually one of the most datified and atomized parts of the book, which is where you account, like financially account for the costs of things like you know, per gram of payload and your brother's medical care and a headstone. And that I found staggeringly affecting.
1: Wow. Well thank you. Yeah. yeah.
0: I I I I don't I don't even know how to phrase this question, but what how did you feel when you thought I know I know I'm gonna put this down in this way? not like where did that idea come from, but when when you found yourself writing it in that way, what was that sensation like? And did you know what how impactful that would be? I
1: didn't know. I mean, the strange thing about writing the book is you actually don't know anything about how impactful anything will be. Um, and if it works, you know, when you write an article, you get feedback very quickly, immediately, and then it moves on. But this book is has found a lot of different readers. So I really appreciate you um, talking about that it felt like um i think there's something in it that is modeled in the book as a whole because it was like a technical thing you know here's technical information but then i just feel like i am a person and i'm not a technology and and like and so every time like a personal thing broke through it felt like the breaking through like you know crashing out of like the technology space and and I did want to, yeah, be honest in the form of the book with when that happened and how. You know, I didn't want to prescribe it or outline it. I wanted to have felt it, have felt the frustration of this world that we live in that that thinks in terms of what things cost so importantly, but also like I do too because I'm a person who has to live in that world. And but there and there are all these things that that cost, you know so little compared to like these huge costs of space exploration, but they're the biggest things in everyone's lives. You know, how much a a favorite meal at a restaurant costs or the cost of the Lego set that my brother bought me when I was nine, um, for like the space station. So Yeah. yeah, basically all I can say is I just wanted to like honor my internal state, um, as, as well as I could with the project. Um, which in my internal state fluctuates between the sort of like technical to abstract to emotional. And um, I mean, maybe even a little bit maudlin at times. (laughs) So, so I I just wanted to just put it out there And in terms of like trepidation uh, I had decided to not write a memoir where it was a sort of tell all, like here's the inside scoop uh, about everyone on the crew. I could have said like a ton of stuff, that didn't seem that valuable that valuable to me and not to dismiss the sort of um works that do do that. I think that they have a place, but that's not um that's not that wasn't the interesting thing for me um the interesting thing was to like excavate it was to explore um myself as a writer in in the process and hope beyond hope that my own exploration of that could provide something to people who would read the book.
0: It certainly does and I recommend Once Upon a Time I Lived on Mars to anyone who wonders about the future of our ability to live in small groups far away from home and our ability to live together on this planet and what we mean to one another. It is poetic, beautiful, eloquent comforting and occasionally I wouldn't say maudlin but very very affecting thank you so much for joining us on non pod Kate where can people find you on the internet on social media if they'd like to know more
1: um well thank you so much for having me this conversation was so excellent and it was just such a pleasure so thank you um I can be found online mostly I am on instagram at kate underscore green with an e at the end um and twitter for very strange posts like my twitter profile doesn't make sense (laughs) to even me (laughs) Uh, but if you're interested in in that that's there too but mostly instagram and kategreen.net is my website for like appearances or you know um
0: poems or anything else that i've been writing fantastic well thank you once again and wishing you all the best from across the world uh, without a 10 minute delay. Thank you for joining us on Non FicPod. Thanks again. Take care. Don't forget, you can really help us by sharing Non FicPod so other people get to hear episodes like this. If you know two or three people who would love to hear Kate's episode, please do forward it on to them. And let us know as well. Either leave us a comment or feedback or you can tweet at us at nonficpot. Thanks very much for listening. We'll see you again soon. reviewing and sharing non-fic pod every little helps to build our audience and that means we get to share fantastic non-fiction with more people just like you and it helps us to keep bringing you the greatest authors and the hottest reads